This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This is the Tudor's Dynasty Podcast. And now, Rebecca Larson. This is episode 119, and I'm your host, Rebecca Larson. As you'll likely remember, I'm in my off-season, preparing like crazy for the new season to begin in September. But until then, the amazing Steph Storer has been holding down the fort, continuing on with Ask the Experts. Now, the last episode, we learned about Arbella Stewart from historian Leanda Delisle. Now, this time, Steph invited author and historian Mary Lovell to chat about Bess of Hardwick. Bess, well, she's such a fascinating character that you're really sure to get pulled into this conversation. Now, the family tree for Arbella and her grandmother, Bess of Hardwick, can be rather confusing. So please check the show notes for a diagram to reference. Since the last episode, I'd like to welcome and thank three new patrons over at Patreon, Jessica M., Lisanne V., and Julie G. Also, a big shout out to Danielle T., Mary M., Erica with a K., Eleonora G., Donna F., Megan M., Elizabeth H., Brooke S., and B-Word for increasing your pledges. Thank you so much. And lastly, I want to thank Susan C., Kara D., Crystal and S., Jamie O., Allison M., Nancy B., and Sarah. You guys know what you did. If you'd like to become a patron, you can do so over at Patreon. It's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash Tudors Dynasty. Check it out. There'll be links in the show notes as well. And now, Ask the Expert. Hi there, welcome to Ask the Expert. I'm Steph Storer, and today's guest, biographer historian Mary Lovell, is here to discuss none other than one of my favorite characters in Tudor history, Bess of Hardwick. Welcome, Mary. Hello, Steph. Very nice to to talk to you. Thanks for coming on. So, all right, I'm too excited to start talking about this, so let's just jump right in. So now, to get everyone acquainted with her, why don't you give us a little bit of background as far as who Bess of Hardwick is, and where she came from. Okay, so Bess was born to, um, she wasn't born in the aristocracy. She was born, her father was, what would you call it, sort of squirearchy here. He was a local squire. They lived in a big house, but, um, you know, uh, compared to the sort of ordinary people. But she was not born into any kind of privilege. I think really her story really starts when she was married at the age of about um, 13 or 14, to the, the, the son, roughly the same age, of a neighbour. It was a sort of dynastic arrangement between the parents. And that young man, Robert Barley, died before the marriage uh, was consummated. In those days, that was a, a normal thing to marry at that age, but didn't consummate the marriage early. Um, I mean, Shakespeare's Juliet, I think, was 13 or 14. So, so it wasn't, you know, extraordinary. Uh, he he died, and he and she was left with a small widow's pension. That was a normal thing in those days. And then she went to work um, 
as a a, a, a lady in waiting for a great aristocrat, um, the Grey family. That's the family of uh, Lady Jane Grey, who became uh, the Nine Days Queen. And while she was there, she met a a man called William Cavendish. He'd just been knighted, Sir William Cavendish. And so she became Lady Cavendish. And um, I, th- th- William Cavendish wasn't the love of Bess's life, but they had a, a true meeting of the minds. They were movers and shakers, this couple. And they, together, they built Chatsworth House. That's not the Chatsworth we know now but it's the base of the Chatsworth we know now. It was a massive, socking great house anyway. Um, and this was in the time of Henry VIII. He died rather suddenly when Henry VIII's daughter, Mary Tudor, that's the lady we call Bloody Mary, came to the throne, leaving Bess in enormous debt. I mean, the equivalent of like £8 million, that's what, that's $15 million or something um, today. And she had, she was 29. She had eight children under the age of 10. And she owed more money than the value of Chatsworth House. And the Queen wanted to take that from her in payment of the debt that her, her husband had left to the state. And I think, I'm sure you'll agree that most women left in that position, even today, would probably say, oh, what the hell, take it, you know. But she fought it. She actually, uh, she networked all of her husband's friends and she got the bill that the Queen had tried to raise to take uh, Chatsworth from her. She got that bill squashed in, 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 the, in the House of Parliament, which was even then the most extraordinary thing for a woman to do. I can't tell you how difficult it must have been for her. I mean, you could, how would you even do it now? It, it staggers me when I think about it. So... Um, Although she had that bill squashed, she still owed all of that money to the state, basically. And along came husband number three, Sir William St. Lowe. He, I mean, this was the love of Bess's life. He was her age. Sir William had been about uh, 20 years older than her. Um, nevertheless, it, was, it, wasn't, it wasn't an unhappy marriage. It was a happy marriage. But when she met Sir William St. Lowe, it was a different thing. She was then 30 and she was, I, I think... He gave her the youth that she'd never had. And so they were at court most of the time. He was a favourite of Queen Elizabeth. And um, they had a very happy marriage for about six years when suddenly he was murdered by his brother um, in the vain hope that he would not leave all of his fortune to Bess. Um, That was, as I say, it was a vain hope because he'd already made a will leaving everything to Bess and she got the lot. So by now she had... The pension from her first marriage, she had, and by the way, while they were married, he paid off the debt to the state. So she now, she has Chatsworth House and she doesn't, and it's unencumbered. And she has all of the St. Low fortunes, that big properties in the West Country. And what's more, she had been introduced to Queen Elizabeth into the household and and uh, the Queen made her a lady of the bedchamber. So she's in a very, very good position. And then along comes husband number four, the Earl of Shrewsbury, um, the Earl Marshal of England, pretty well the most important nobleman in the land. And they get married. And for a few years, they have a really happy time until he was asked to be the caretaker of Mary, Queen of Scots, when she came to England and threw herself on the mercy of Queen Elizabeth. At first, that worked out. 
the, the two the two women were actually both very uh, keen needlewomen and and, and and were quite friendly, quite quite friendly. Um, and then I think what happened was Mary realised that she wasn't going to get free of her imprisonment, and I think she felt the best thing to do was to work at, to separate the Earl of Shrewsbury and Bess. You know, it, it was like divide and rule, and. Uh, so that so she tried to to split the marriage up. In fact, she succeeded. Um, not immediately. It took 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 some years because Mary was a prisoner for sixteen years of um, of Shrewsbury. Uh, but anyway, it did break the marriage up, and and <laughs> that divorce. Well, they never actually um, divorced legally, but they separated, and the reverberations of of this divorce sort of echoed through the kingdom well you know they didn't have like news at 10 or 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 social networking but the letters and best wrote to everybody she wrote to the queen she wrote to cecil she wrote to um uh well really every important man in the kingdom putting her side of the story and then the earl did the same thing so I mean, the whole of the court was brought into this. They, they were amazing letters. There are, I think there were about 40 of them. And it, it, it's, it's really, I don't want to say, it's like, it's like a television drama, really, <laughs> their, their divorce. Anyway, they did, they did, they did separate. And um, Bess, oh, and then shortly afterwards, he died. Now, at the time of his death, Bess was left a very wealthy woman. She had really four fortunes. Even so, she managed to almost treble that amount of money before she died with no man to help her. In fact, I think reading her history, it was no man to hinder her. But once she had no one to say what she could do and what she couldn't do, she just went from strength to strength and built up her fortune and, and built houses and built businesses. She was almost like a modern day woman entrepreneur I, I mean if if she was living today i mean she'd probably be heading google or something you know um but the most amazing woman um for her time and with an attitude that is very similar to highly successful active women today little teasers you left in there throughout just so we can come back to each one of them with all of our listener questions but so the first thing that I want to bring up, uh, again, you touched on this a little bit, but this question came from several of our listeners and was by far the most asked. But basically, you had mentioned uh, Elizabeth was well known for her four advantageous marriages, obviously some more successful than others. You mentioned that her first husband was kind of a quicker, not necessarily the, the most advantageous, I guess. Um, I love that you called William Cavendish a meeting of the minds. It was successful in that more like a business transaction. Um, William St. Lowe was the love of her life. And then George Talbot went kind of awry. But you mentioned then that you think that William St. Lowe was kind of the love of her life. And the others not necessarily love matches. So because she was continuing to just get wealthier and wealthier, do did she really need to be married each of those times? Well, right. after the first marriage, she she was left. She was, what, 16, 17, and she had a, a, what you might call a competence. She, it was something like £38 a year, I think. I mean, just enough to have a comfortable life as a single woman in a cottage. So, I mean, you, you know, you can forget that as far as Bess is concerned, she was going far higher than that. 
Um, and her, her marriage to William Cavendish, um, I, I, I think they certainly liked each other. And when he died, she described him as my most dearly beloved husband. I mean, uh, you know, in her diary. So I think they had a very good and a very successful and a very happy marriage that worked for them. I don't think it was a passionate love marriage. Mind you, they had nine children, so perhaps it was passionate, you know, but difficult going back after over all that time. Um, there might have been some passion there, sure. <laughs> as I told you, when he died, he left her massively in debt. I mean, it makes me shudder to think about you know, how she was left then. So, sure, she needed to marry then. She didn't have the Cavendish fortune. What she had was the Cavendish debt. So William St. Lowe was a very rich man, and he paid off that debt. So she was only rich in that respect after Sir William St. Lowe died. She did love him. They were very passionate. The letters that... I think there are half a dozen letters that I found that were from Sir William to Bess, and they are passionate, you know, I mean, he always, he's talked to her as a, you know, you're more dear to me than my, my life. And, uh, you know, they really are love letters, uh, very unusual for the time, because they didn't actually write love letters in the way that people in the 19th and 20th century did. But nevertheless, they were. And, and I, I believe they were still madly in love when he was, when he died so suddenly, um, probably, almost certainly murdered by his brother. His mother certainly thought so. And it was poison, is that right? Poison, yes. But he he'd poisoned several other people before that, so <laughs> I, he knew what he was doing. <laughs> he knew what he was doing, yeah. Um so at, at at that point, no, she didn't have to get married at that point. But she was a, an enormously ambitious woman. And you remember the roots I said that she'd come from? It was mm, sort of an important you know, squire in the village where she grew up in rural uh, Derbyshire, which was a million miles from the court. And here she had an offer from the premier nobleman in the land. Now, in those days, noblemen didn't marry uh, non-aristocratic people. It, and one of the things that he flung at her during their terrible divorce proceedings was um, the fact that you know, he'd raised her up from nothing. I mean, she wasn't exactly nothing. She owned Chatsworth House, and a massive estate, and she had, you know, the Chatsworth money and the, and the St. Lowe money and all the estates down in the West Country that St. Lowe had left her. So she was certainly not a nobody. <laughs> but here she was, married to the premier nobleman in the land. And I think that was a marriage... She obviously liked him because he, in the, in their early letters, again, he wrote very nice things to her. It was only later that they became so antagonistic. Um, but so I, I, I think they get on well together. And she, but she was looking for the main chance here. She was highly ambitious, and we, you know, we see this building in her, um, in the way that she married her children, always to their terrific advantage. You know. We're going to go to a question from uh, listener Marcus Ryan. During her marriage to St. Lowe, Elizabeth got caught up in a pretty juicy scandal with Catherine Gray and her secret marriage. Can you tell us anything about that? Yeah, um, Bess, um, I think I mentioned earlier that Bess had, after she was widowed as a very young woman, she went to work as a lady-in-waiting in the Gray household. That was the household of uh, Lady Jane Gray. And Lady Jane had two sisters, Catherine, and um, gosh, I've forgotten the name of the younger girl. 
Um, Mary. Mary, that's right. Mary, yeah. who's the, the least the least person at court who married the tallest man at court. Exactly um, right. Yeah. So Catherine uh, was um, a, a young child when Bess went to work um, uh, for her mother. I mean, it wasn't work. Work. I mean, they weren't paid. It was. It was like sort of an honorary position. Um, Catherine was actually the uh, godmother to uh, Bess's daughter Elizabeth. So the, the families were intertwined. I mean, you know, they were very close. And then when um, the girl's mother died, um, Bess sort of she didn't take over as a sort of foster mother or anything, but she looked after she looked after them. She was heartbroken when Jane Grey, you know, was executed, and, and she kept a picture of Jane Grey on her on her bedside table for the rest of her life. Um, but uh, Catherine Grey, I think she just kept a friendly eye on the girl at court. And the, she was at court because Elizabeth didn't trust this girl who was so close to the succession. Anyway, she secretly married um, Edward Seymour, who also had a claim to the succession. It was a marriage that was absolutely prohibited by law because anybody who was in succession to the throne had to get the Queen's permission to marry. Neither of these, they, you know, they're both liberty gibbets, these, this young couple. They didn't get permission. And they, they got married. And when she, was, when she was about, she was seven months pregnant, she decides to fess up and she kept, she, 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 she corners Bess in a, in, in a, you know, a corridor one evening when they're out actually on a royal tour. And she says, Oh, I've got something to tell you, you know, <laughs> great big tummy sticking out. <laughs> and Bess are you mad um so i i mean i best didn't know what to do i mean she could see she'd already seen one sister beheaded you know um she knew that the mother had been in deep trouble for a similar thing now here comes catherine uh throwing herself on 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 bessie's mercy and, and she's absolutely horrified immediately goes and tells her husband and the next day catherine says in her in her deposition that she gave to the to the court at a later date, I could see people were looking at me. <laughs> I mean, maybe they were looking at her because she wasn't supposed to be married and she had like, you know, she was obviously seven months pregnant. But anyway, that's, that's another story. Um, anyway, so realising that she wasn't going to get anywhere with Bess, who had fled in tears to uh, to William St. Lowe, Catherine then goes and um, confronts Robert Dudley, the Earl of Leicester, in his bedroom. He's also absolutely horrified uh, he's thinking what if someone finds this pregnant woman in my bedroom <laughs> sure. good decision after good decision on Catherine's part <laughs> she was such a fruitcake honestly I can't tell you so um uh, anyway uh, the Earl of Leicester isn't standing for this he goes and tells Elizabeth and immediately the girl is shipped back to London and put into the tower that you know was was forecastable you could Beth could see it coming you know I could see it coming <laughs> a, a fool could um eventually she uh, they were both put in the tower she had the child um and they, uh, about a year later he got permission from the uh, tower governor the, the, the husband uh, Seymour to go and visit his wife, and hey ho, she gets pregnant again. Eventually, uh, she. I th I've got a feeling. I don't know if I'm mixing her up, but I've got a feeling she uh, starved herself to death in the end. Uh, sort of. Um, what's that? Uh, not bulimia. The other one. Oh, anorexia. Yep. Yep. Yeah. 
Yeah, I've got a feeling she that she was, you know, a sort of highly nervy sort of girl, and she starved herself to death. So the the, the husband, the young husband, uh, was was released then at home, and he he brought up he brought up the boys. But that's how Bess became involved in it. She was very unwilling, um, and the Queen didn't believe Bess at first. But I mean, obviously, she came to believe. I think William St. Lowe must have you know, uh, put in a good word. He was a, he was a, a favourite of the Queen. He he had pretty well saved her life at one point, and he was the uh, master of the Queen's personal guard, like her personal bodyguard, you know. So he's very close to Queen Elizabeth. So he was helpful in making sure that Bess didn't get in trouble for knowing some of the secrets flo- flying around. Absolutely. Absolutely, yeah. Now, speaking of Bess's other uh, relationships... We also talked about Mary, Queen of Scots a little bit, and this is very interesting, and I don't know what people know about Bess, or obviously we know about Mary, Queen of Scots, but we know that she lived with her and her fourth husband, I think you said, is that correct, Uh, for some time. So Katie Ray wanted to know, how did that come about? How How did Bess and Talbot get to be the people that were in charge of Mary, Queen of Scots at the time? Okay, well, um, the Earl of Shrewsbury um, was chosen probably precisely because he had about half a dozen massive stately homes, um, such as um, uh, Sheffield Castle, Tutbury Castle, uh, Wakefield Manor, nice big houses. I, I mean, a queen, even a captive queen, comes with a lot of baggage. You know, she had a personal court and servants of around about 40 people. And so it was not just a question of housing Mary Queen of Scots, but her entire court and all the horses. Don't forget, no cars in those days. So everyone had one or two horses, plus all the grooms, the cooks, you know, it was a a massive big party. So anyone who was captive, who was, um, sorry, the um, looking after the captive had to have somewhere to put. And you couldn't just put someone in a place and you know, leave them there for like a couple of years because there was no drainage, you know. And when you'd had a 100 people living in a house for about six months, it began to stink to high heaven and it had to be what they call, you know, cleaned. Um, and and so he needed to have another house he could move the queen and her entourage to uh, when, you know, uh, things got, got too stinky for them. So <laughs> um, he was chosen because he had all these properties. Uh, Bess, they had been married about two years by then, and he and Bess were both very pleased at the time that he was given this commission because they could see that it would it, sort of, in a way, it would place the Queen in his debt. You know, he was doing her an enormous favour, uh, taking this big problem off her hands. Um, and uh, so they, 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 they took it on with alacrity, you know. And, and at first, the two women got on very well together. They were both extremely good needlewomen and the results of their work can still be seen today and it and it is absolutely stunning um there's two or three exhibits around the united kingdom i think the summit um uh, um hardwick hall sorry some at oxenberg and some in the in the vna and then needlework is just unbelievably good so they used to sit every day um doing their needlework and chatting and gossiping. And for about a year or 18 months, they got on enormously well. And then things started to fall apart. During the time that they were friends and chatting, I mean, they exchanged a lot of confidences. 
um, uh, you know, and, 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 and sort of ran other women down, perhaps even the Queen, you know, Queen Elizabeth. But I, but I, I don't think um, there is any truth in the fact that Mary wrote to, wrote to Queen Elizabeth at one point and said, oh, well, you know, you, you trust Bess of Hardwick, but in fact, I can tell you, she's very disdainful of you. I don't, I don't think that is true because I've seen Bess's other correspondence throughout her life and she was always very respectful of the Queen. Um, so anyway, I think I, I touched on it in, in my preamble that Mary, Queen of Scots, decided that a very good way of perhaps gaining her freedom would be to to divide and rule. So she started flirting with George, um, the the, the Earl, Bess's husband, and um, and she was a very beautiful woman. Every every description of Mary Queen of Scots that you ever read, you know, touches on the fact that she is very beautiful. She had um, a, a sort of a sexy French accent, and and uh, a lot of men fell for this. Um, I, I can't remember the, the the man's name who wrote to Elizabeth and dis, and said, you know, her voice as well as her manner is, is entrancing. So anyway, uh, uh, George fell for this and, and gradually began to start um, um, really picking holes in, in Bess and her behaviour. And Bess got a bit fed up with this, so she left and went to live at Chatsworth. Um, and she would spend six months there. She, I mean, originally she would say to him, look, I've got to go and look after my estate. I mean, it's not being looked after properly. And um, and I think he went along with it at first, but then she was spending longer and longer away from him because whenever he came back, you know, they had arguments and it was mainly about Mary. Um, and so it, uh, George was in a funny position. A, he was... He, he he sort of admired and liked this woman that he was a captive of, but by the same token, when he took her on as a prisoner, he was promised the, a certain amount of money to help him look after her and her entourage, her vast entourage. In fact, that money was never forthcoming. Queen Elizabeth I was notoriously mean. Um, I mean, she, she was never rich because she inherited a bankrupt treasury from her father and uh, and her sister. But um, she always found the money for wonderful dresses for herself, but she was very mean in paying her bills. Um, one of the bills that she never paid was the bill to George Shrewsbury for looking after Mary, Queen of Scots. And he, you, his, his, his own wealth shrank proportionately because he was keeping what was like a second court, you know, keeping this woman in, in absolute luxury and her court and moving them to his various houses. I mean, the upkeep was was enormous. Um, Bess got a bit fed up with this. And, you know, she was sort of nagging, started nagging him, you know, go and tell the Queen, you know, we need the money. And um, and she was writing to Cecil saying the same thing. It's disgraceful, you know, that uh, we're having to do this, and you know, out of our own exchequer and we're not getting we're not getting paid. That went on for some years. Um, and gradually the marriage just fell apart. But it but it was worked upon. I mean, it's quite obvious that it was worked upon by Mary, Queen of Scots. She was the third person in that marriage, which eventually ended, of course. So then before we move on from Mary, Queen of Scots, I just want to make sure that I ask Jennifer C.'s question about that letter. So you're you're thinking that this somewhat sneakily written letter to Queen Elizabeth mentioning um, the disdain Bess had for her 
you think that Mary actually did not write that letter? Oh, no, I didn't. She did. I, I'm absolutely sure she wrote that letter. Oh, I'm yeah. sorry. I thought that you had said you didn't think it existed. No, no, no she wrote the letter. But, I, I mean, I think it was based on the confidences of a couple of women gossiping, like we would gossip over coffee, you know, and, uh, and we might talk about a third person in a sort of catty, slightly catty way. Uh, that's, that's the sort of thing I think happened. Mary, Queen of Scots, remembered some remark that Bess had made and reported it to, uh, um, uh, do, do you know the sort of thing you might say that a third woman, you know, had turned up at a wedding and and was sort of prancing around in an outfit that was maybe a bit young for her. And, you know, you'd be with your mate having a cup of coffee and you'd say, well, who does she think she is? The bloody Queen of Chiba or something, you know. Um, I, I think that's the sort of, you know, gossipy, catty remark that was made. And, and Mary brought it out and, and said, oh, she said... Um, in that letter, I believe she said, um, people say she dresses far too young for her age. Uh, words to that effect, you know. I mean, it, it was that sort of thing. And it may well have happened years earlier when they had when those shared confidences over their needlework. But I, I, you know, I think the letter went, it was much later. It was probably eight or nine years into the imprisonment that that letter went to the Queen, maybe even later than that. You know, I mean, Bess was getting on to be in her 60s by then, I should think. Gotcha. I'm glad I asked because I could have, I thought, I heard you, I misheard you before and I thought you said you didn't think that the letter. So there you go, Jennifer C. I'm glad we brought it up again. Um, so now we're going to go to her daughter, Elizabeth Cavendish. Bess's daughter with Cavendish. Yes. She got married to Charles Stewart. So the Tudor age asks, why did Bess ignore a summons from Queen uh, Queen Elizabeth to answer questions about this particular marriage. Well, it's a similar thing to um, the Grey situation. Uh, Arbella, uh, oh, sorry, um, Elizabeth, sorry, Arbella's their child. El Elizabeth, uh, um, the daughter, married uh, the son of Margaret Douglas, who was the Countess of Lennox. And she was the granddaughter of Henry VIII through his eldest sister, who uh, Margaret, who went, who married the, the Scottish king and went to live in Scotland. And Margaret Douglas was that, descended through that line. So her sons, the Darnley boys, they had a claim to the throne. What Margaret Douglas didn't have was money. And Bess had plenty of money. And so Mar it, it, it was... Um, it was a plot, really, fixed between these two mums who were both ambitious for their children. In Margaret Douglas's case, she was marrying in, she was marrying the boy into money. And in Bess's case, she was marrying the girl into really unbelievable heights because almost into the royal family. And so these, these two women set this thing up and they should have got permission from the Queen. And, and just like the Grey um, uh, marriage to Seymour, this marriage of uh, of the Cavendish girl to uh, the Lennox boy, uh, he, he became the Earl of Lennox when his older brother died. Uh, you know, it, it, it was against the law. Um, when So I think what happened as soon as the Queen found out about it, the first thing she did was put the boy's mother, Margaret Douglas, Countess of Lennox, into the tower. I think it was the third time the Countess of Lennox had found herself in the tower. 
she then summoned Bess to come and answer questions. Well, it was, I believe it was the end of November, December, so the roads were getting pretty bad, and Bess used the excuse it was just the roads were impossible. She would come as soon as it was convenient and she could and she could travel. Um, and then I think the next excuse was her daughter was, well, Elizabeth was giving birth to the child um, who was who, who was our Bella Stewart. Um, uh, and uh, well, then the, the, the young woman died. So gradually there was excuse after excuse. And, and by the time, you know, May or June rolled around, the Queen had forgotten about the whole thing. The girl was dead anyway. So the whole matter was dropped. But, that, you know, it was just best playing, the, you know, playing the game, really. And she knew that if she went to London, she'd end up in the tower and she'd know she didn't want to. So she used what excuses she could. I'm so glad that we started talking about Arbella because this is the fun stuff now. So Arbella was gr- Bess's granddaughter, whom I think she raised. Is that correct? Because Cavendish passed away early. She was. Did she grow up with, with she was, Bess? Yeah, she was a toddler when her father died, Cavendish. Elizabeth was was a toddler when her, fa- her, her father died. That was William Cavendish. But Arbella was orphaned very young because Elizabeth, her mother, Elizabeth, died, right? So she was Bess's granddaughter, and, Be- and Bess brought her up. Right. So do you believe that she was grooming Arbella to take the throne one day? And if so, was it to become Elizabeth's successor or to seize the throne from her? And thank you for that question. Before I forget, Tudor, Tudor Storians. I think she may have had it in her mind that Arbella could possibly get near to the throne because, after all, there weren't very many uh, people in the way. Uh, so when she married, when she married Elizabeth to um, uh, to the Talbot boy, she probably had something in her mind. But as for grooming Arbella to be queen, she. She raised her as a princess. You know, she had all of the, the tutoring and the and the education of a princess. There was certainly no possibility in Bess's mind that she could take the throne. But she was endlessly ambitious for her children and her grandchildren. Um, I I wouldn't put it past her that she hoped that Arbella might either sit on the throne or sit very close to the throne. And in fact, she did because she was first cousin to um james king of six uh james the sixth of scotland who then became james the first of england after elizabeth died and arbella went to court and was living with the royal family at court i mean she was a very important person uh, for a while at court arbella so I, I, yeah i think that that was that that was it Bess was ambitious for her children and grandchildren but there was there was no thought of her you know seizing the throne that's a that, that that's a bit wild, that suggestion. So things went awry in the relationship between Arbella and Bess later on in their life. So how did things kind of start to fall apart? And once they did, did she, am I correct in that she really tried to disinherit her from her will just to prove a point to Elizabeth? No. Something about probably her, her secret marriage too. Uh, no, it wasn't because of a secret marriage. That that came later. That came after after Bess's death. 
uh, no, uh, why their relationship fell apart. I mean, basically, she was like a bullshit teenager, you know, um, uh, and she just made her grandmother's life an absolute bloody misery. I, I sort of, you can sympathise with the girl who who was sort of like uh, the princess in the golden cage, you know. Um, she had been sent to court. She'd been a success at court. Elizabeth thought she was maybe too bit of a, much of a success and sent her home to her grandmother and told her to, you know, keep her close. Um, and she just got fed up and she persuaded her uncle, that's Bess's eldest son, Henry, to escape, run away, um, to help her to run away. And um, she had she'd actually written to one of the Seymour uh, boys who she thought would be sort of, you know, marriageable. And made the suggestion to her. And she, then she, when she was going to run away, she was just going to run to this guy. I mean, it was the most stupid, ill-thought-out plan. And Bess got to hear of it because Bess had her ear to the ground. There wasn't anything that happened north of the Trent, really, um, in that part of Derbyshire that Bess didn't know about. But then Arbella was then imprisoned even more severely. And I don't know whether she was slightly on the spectrum you know, or she may have had bipolar, but her behaviour uh, was terrible. I mean, you couldn't you couldn't have lived with that person and had a comfortable life. Uh, Bess's previously very comfortable life, she was widowed by then and she was her own woman. She was the, the second richest woman in the country, really second in importance to the Queen. Um, this granddaughter made her life an absolute misery, not to mention her elder son, Henry, whom Bess started referring to as my bad son, Henry. He was uh, the owner of Chatsworth. It had passed to him um, from his father, William Cavendish. But he had no money. Neither of them had any money. N none of Bess's children ever did anything for themselves. All their money, all, all of their position, everything came through Bess. And these two were... Well, I, you know, I, I quoted um, sharper than a serpent's tooth as an ungrateful child. And that's what these two were like. I mean, they thought the best should just give them what they wanted and let them behave as they wanted. And best didn't want that. So really, um, she then begged the queen to take Arbella off her hands. Um, and I, eventually Arbella was taken off her hands and given to someone to look after. But uh, best, she had hurt. Bess terribly and um, I think Bess was probably a nervous wreck she was a, she was about getting on for 80 by then my age and I can tell you the last thing you want is a bullshit kid in the house messing things up and that that's that's pretty well how it was it it was painful to read really how difficult Arbella made Bess's life at that, at that time so um she just changed her will and she cut out Henry my bad son Henry and she cut out Arbella um, shortly before her death, Arbella wrote to her and said, you know, look, I'm sorry, Granny, you know, I can't we be friends and so on. And Bess just saw this as <laughs> as um, really a way of having herself written into the will again. Well, she she did change the will. She left her, um, I can't remember what it was, a very you know, expensive gold Italian mirror or something. Um, um, but that was it. I mean, you know, the money was left to the other children and the, the grandchildren, not to Arbella and not to my bad son, Henry. Isn't that sad? Because I think we often hear that the issue stemmed from Bess's 
personality being overbearing and bossy and angry and all these kinds of things. But it's interesting to hear you say it's it's interesting to hear you say that actually Arbella wasn't perfect either. And she was honestly, she was a nightmare. You know, um, I had um, I had a holiday last <laughs> last year with one of my granddaughters, who um, <laughs> she wasn't quite like Arbella, but I can tell you, I had three days of hell <laughs> in the in the two weeks, and uh, and I thought it was fine. I mean, I'll bet this is what Beth went through. You know, I mean, there's nothing worse than a young woman who thinks she knows everything and you know of nothing course. because you're old. You know, <laughs> isn't that always how it goes? <laughs> so, I mean, look, nothing. You know what? Nothing in history changes. Not the way people feel about each other in marriage or in their relationships. I see it no matter who I'm writing about, no matter how long ago it is, human nature has not changed. All, all, all the differences, we don't, you know, we don't have necessarily the proof of how people behave. But what little proof we have, we know it was the same. And as far as Beth was concerned, she was all those things you said. She was probably very bossy she was controlling i'm absolutely sure she, you know you got on the wrong side of her she wouldn't be a very she wouldn't be a good enemy i i could say that in fact i don't know that anybody who ever triumphed over her i mean she seemed to polish everybody off but there was a there was a lot of good in this i mean she would um, help some young person um and lend the money and sort of lift them up you know and then leave them just 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 give them give them a great help I, I think there was a lot of kindness in her and I think she she could be a very nice woman but you didn't want to get on the wrong side of her but she wasn't all that way I mean you know uh, I mean it wasn't it, like most people there's exactly. there two sides to the coin I became very, very fond of her. Now, another thing Bess is known is well known for, aside from her bossiness and controlling nature, are her accomplishments in building and renovating. What castles or estates yeah. do you think that we should know about that are most important? I think you talked about a few of them already. Uh, but if you could just let us know kind of which ones to look out for. I know that there's some with the uh, with the windows, with her initials in it. And again, we had a handful of listeners who brought up the building. So hello to everybody. This is for you. I'm not going to go through the list of, you know, 10 people that wanted to know about the buildings. Well, I mean, actually, there's only one building left now, which is entire and exactly as best designed it. And that is Hardwick Hall. I mean, you've got the ruins of the old Hardwick Hall, which was where Bess grew up and which she later turned from a small manor farmhouse into a very grand building that you can still see today, the ruins of it. Um, that's how, So that's Hardwick Hall. She built Chatsworth, of course, but Chatsworth you see today, although it is built on the exact same uh, foundations and is the same shape as Bess's Chatsworth, it's, it's a Palladian building that was uh, rebuilt by the sixth Duke of of Devonshire, who, of course, was one of Bess's um, uh, successors. Um, so uh, there's really only Hardwick Hall. Now, Hardwick Hall, I don't know whether you've ever been, Steph. It is the most amazing place. This is the one that that, that, that someone quipped, Hardwick Hall, more glass than wall. It is a beautiful building. Uh, I mean, the, before that, buildings had been more or less fortresses, um, but this is light and it, it's just a lovely, lovely building. 
must have been hell to heat. I, um, how they kept warm, I don't know. But if you go to Hardwick Hall now, it uh, it's not been changed in any respect. And the Cavendishes didn't sort of make it their chief home, so they didn't modernise it through the centuries in the way the Chatsworth has been modernised. If you go into Hardwick Hall now, to be honest, sometimes you, I get the impression that Bess has just stepped out. You know, she's just stepped out and gone down to the shops and she's going to come back because it is so beautifully, it's just Elizabethan. It's walking into an Elizabethan home and it's warm and it feels like a home. And it's, I mean, warm in feeling. I don't mean a temperature because it's closed in the winter. <laughs> and the reason is there's no way you can heat it. Must have been awful. I mean, in those days, you know, they would have every fire. There were fireplaces in every room, and they would have massive sort of logs burning day and night, and servants to keep the fires in to keep the house warm. I mean, they can't do that now. Um, but uh, look, Hardwick Hall is the most amazing building, and anybody who's even remotely interested in Bess, I urge you to go to Hardwick Hall. It is so so beautiful. You make such a great case for her. I love it. Well, Mary, thank you so much for your time. It was so nice to talk to you today about best. But I do want to mention that the reason that you're here as the best expert is because of your book. I mentioned earlier in the beginning that you are uh, a biographer and historian. And your best book in the UK, I think you mentioned, is just called Best of Hardwick, while here in the US, it's called Empire Builder. So how can we read it? Where can we get it? And how can we find you if we want to reach out with more questions? Oh, um, well, I've got a website. It's uh, www.marylovell.com. But my books are all available um, under Mary S. Lovell. My middle middle name is Sibylla. And um, I keep the S in as a sort of good luck charm. So I write as Mary S. Lovell. And uh, the the books are all available on Amazon. And... um, in fact, all of my books are still in print. It amazes me. The books I wrote 40 years ago, I'm still getting royalties from them. Um, and I'm very deeply grateful for that. Now I've retired, you know. Well, you're still getting the royalties because they're great books. I mean, I've read the, I've read your best one, and it's amazing, and it's so helpful. And it really, it really did spark my interest in her. So thank you. And I urge everybody else to pick it up and everything else you have. Thank you, Steph. It's so kind. And that concludes this episode of the Tudor's Dynasty podcast. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoy the show, please show your support by leaving a review wherever you listen. Reviews are some of the greatest gifts that you can leave a podcaster because it suggests their show to people who may not have even known it existed. So thank you so much for your support. Thanks for checking out the Tudor's Dynasty podcast. Read more. Read more on the blog at TudorsDynasty.com. Follow Tudor's Dynasty on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Subscribe to Tudor's Dynasty on iTunes. Thanks for listening.